the default position is always that fat is bad. And of course, the reality of nutrition, the reality of physiology is much more nuanced than that. People have this idea that, you know, nutrition science is easy and all you've got to do is give people nutrient X and you'll find out what it does. People could have their blood omega-3 status measured and, you know, you can test improving that through eating more fish or decreasing the nalaic acid intake or taking omega-3 supplements and see whether you've moved yourself up in the status marker. If you did that, you would be lowering your risk of cardiometabolic disease. Hey friends, welcome back. In today's conversation, I sit down with Philip Calder, PhD, to talk about omega-3 and six fats. When it comes to fat, there is endless amounts of confusion in the media and on social media, that's for sure. To make sense of things and be more confident with our food choices, I'm of the view that we have to look to domain-specific experts. And when it comes to omega-3 and 6 fats, Dr. Calder is precisely the domain-specific expert that we need to help clear the confusion. Dr. Calder is a nutrition scientist who's been researching how different fats, specifically omega-3 and 6 fats, affect human health over a research career that spanned more than 30 years. Are omega-6 fats inflammatory? Do we need to limit our consumption of seed oils? Do we need to eat fish? Are omega-3 supplements worth taking? If we buy an omega-3 supplement, what should we look for? We cover all of this and more. I hope you enjoy it. This is me and Philip Calder, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store, to get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products 
being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. You've been researching fatty acids for over 20 years at this point with an emphasis on polyunsaturated fats. Why have you focused on this area of nutrition and human physiology? Yeah, that, I think that's a good question. So um, my interest in fatty acids and immunity initially started with the question about how immune cells fuel themselves. <clears throat> and the old story was that the immune system fueled itself just on glucose. <clears throat> but actually, it turned out, as we know now, that immune cells can get energy also from fatty acid oxidation, from amino acid oxidation. And they actually change their pattern of fuel use in different states of activation. So that um, initial idea around whether fatty acids can be used as fuels for the immune system was how I started work in this area. <clears throat> and at that time, actually, it was more than two decades ago. It was... Uh, even more than three decades ago, Simon. Um, at that time, there was quite a lot of interest in um, omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. <clears throat> so I started research looking at whether immune cells in culture used different types of fatty acids differently from one another. <clears throat> and I stumbled across... Um, the fact that the long-chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA, um, were used by immune cells, but more importantly, they actually altered the function of those cells. So the cells behaved differently. So that drew me into studying fatty acid functionality. <clears throat> um, and, you know, omega-3s were uh, sort of most effective at influencing cell function, and the obvious comparison was with omega-6 fatty acids. So that's really how work on polyunsaturated fatty acids started. But I haven't only exclusively worked on polyunsaturates, also worked on, you know, monos, um, saturated fatty acids, at least in, in model systems. Would you say you spent more of your career looking at and thinking about omega-3 polyunsaturated fats or have you also spent a significant amount of time looking at omega-6 polyunsaturated fats as well? I think I've probably spent more time and more effort looking at omega-3s, particularly EPA and DHA, but also plant omega-3s. But, you know, in nutrition, there's always got to be, you know, nutrition works by replacement. <clears throat> so, of course, if you take supplements, you might be adding them onto your diet and omega-3s are available as supplements, and often that's how we study them. But in terms of nutrition, something is replacing something else. 
And, um, you know, that asks a question about how you, what controls you use when you do nutrition research. And I think because omega-3s are polyunsaturated, the comparison has most often been with omega-6s. So we've always had some interest also in omega-6s. And actually, we did human research quite early on with arachidonic acid, which almost nobody had done at that stage. So I have done research on omega-6s and thought a lot about omega-6s, but the reality is actually more of the research has been about omega-3s as an active form of polyunsaturated fatty acids. If someone's listening and thinking that some of this sounds like another language, arachidonic acid and polyunsaturated fats, things like that, we're going to define some of these in a moment and talk about the, the different pathways so that as we progress through this conversation, hopefully things land a little bit easier. But while we're here talking about your career, what would you say is the most controversial or misunderstood thing about fatty acids that you've encountered either within academia or perhaps in media, sort of social media circles? Yeah, so I think um, the default position is always that fat is bad. Um, And, of course, the reality of nutrition, the reality of physiology is much more nuanced than that. So by fat, people are usually meaning the things in the diet that fatty acids are the main component of. So the fats and oils that we eat are mainly composed of fatty acids. And we have a whole range of different types of fatty acids. So we already mentioned omega-3s, omega-6s, saturates, monounsaturates. So within fats, we have all of these different, I'll call them nutritional classes of fatty acids. And, you know, they're not all by definition bad. Um, they have physiological impacts relative to one another. So I think the most difficult thing, um, perhaps, in going to lay audiences is that fat by its nature, by definition, isn't necessarily bad, that actually we have very helpful fatty acids in the diet. We have essential fatty acids in the diet and, you know, we have to have those fatty acids. So I think that is um, for the lay audience, one of the most sort of difficult things to get around But that also features in the academic and clinical audiences as well, that, you know, fat isn't just fat. It's 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 a complex mixture of different fatty acids that have different physiological actions. And together, they are influencing the way our cells and tissues work. So they're sort of setting our health trajectory. So we can think about fat more so as an umbrella term or a class Mm -hmm. of varying fatty acids with distinguishing properties, as you just mentioned there. Um, How would you lay that out for someone, sort of broadly speaking? You just sort of mentioned a few of them there, but what are broadly speaking, what are the different classes of fats that we could break them down into? Yeah, yeah. So, So in general, we have what we call saturated fatty acids and we have unsaturated fatty acids. And then within the unsaturated fatty acids, we have monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. 
And then within the polyunsaturated, we have omega-6 and omega-3. Now, all of those words, you know, they come easily off of my tongue, but uh, people may not understand what they mean. But they're all just descriptions of the, the chemical structure of the fatty acid. So they're actually chemical terms. But it turns out the structure of the fatty acids strongly impacts on the physiological effects. In other words, the way fatty acids influence how our cells and tissues work, and that impacts our state of health. So there is a relationship between sort of chemical structure, physiological effect, and health impact of the fatty acids. I think that's a really important point for people to sit with because it would be easy to think that all fat is equal. One gram of fat is nine calories. But what you're saying is that that fat is more than just energy and the unique structure will affect the way that that fat interacts with your physiology. Yep, yep. You've got it um, exactly right there, Simon. So um, from an energy point of view, you know, as you say, a gram of fat is, gives us nine calories. Um, but fatty acids are more than just energy sources. So, so our cell membranes, for example, so the things that envelop our cells, separate the inside from the outside of the cells, are composed of a type of fat called phospholipids. And those phospholipids all contain fatty acids. <clears throat> and the fatty acid makeup of our cell membrane influences how our cells interact with their external environment and influences the signals that are generated within our cells. So if we change the fatty acid makeup of the cell membrane, we influence how cells respond to the stimuli they're getting from outside. So in other words, we influence cell behavior. And if I change my diet today, let's say I adjust my diet in a way where I dial up saturated fat. I load up on coconut oil and butter and fatty cuts of meat and I reduce vegetable oils and chia seeds and hemp seeds and fatty fish. So I've upped my saturated fats. I've lowered my mono and polyunsaturated fats. Will I change the cell membrane? Yes. So we know there's a, a good relationship between the dietary intake of different fatty acids and the makeup of our cell membranes. <clears throat> this is particularly true for our omega-3 intake, but also for intake of other fatty acids. <clears throat> so our cell membrane composition will change over time according to our diet until we get to a new sort of steady state. Um, so that is actually part of the relationship between fatty acid intake. So what, you know, we might call fat intake, but fat is a mixture of all these different fatty acids. So that's part of the relationship between fatty acid intake and health. <clears throat> you know, we have to have a biological link between what we're eating and the health outcome. And part of that is our cell membrane makeup. That's not the only thing, but that is a really important aspect of that relationship. Um, and that's why the fatty acids we eat, <clears throat> so the constituents of the fats we eat, actually influence health outcomes, uh, things like, you know, inflammation, blood lipid concentrations, um, how our heart is functioning, how our brain is functioning. 
Part of that link there is the membrane of the cells in those locations where that sort of functionality is happening. I want to come back to that makeup and our diet in a little bit because there is this idea out there that I see in certain circles that if you consume a lot of polyunsaturated fats, particularly linoleic acid, omega-6 fats, that the cell membrane will there'll be more of these found in the cell membrane and also low density lipoproteins will be richer in these polyunsaturated fats, which certain people hold the view will make these compounds uh, more likely to oxidize and become inflammatory. And I'm sure that's a view that you've heard. I want to kind of work our way up to that. I'm just flagging it now so we can put a pin in it just to, to sort of double click on this fatty acids 101 um, and what, what fatty acids are and the different types. You mentioned essential. What is it that makes a fat essential versus a fat that would be described as non-essential? Yeah. So, so strictly speaking, in nutritional terms, an essential nutrient is a nutrient that um, the human body can't make but is important for function. <clears throat> And the most obvious essential nutrients are many of the vitamins and, you know, all of the minerals. So, you know, we can't make zinc, iron, copper, selenium, etc. So they're essential in our diet. We have to get them in food. And if we don't consume enough of them, we can develop, a, a, you know, poor physiology and ultimately a disease that's reflecting essential nutrient uh, deficiency. So in fatty acids, in the fatty acid world, there are two classically essential fatty acids. So these are fatty acids which we cannot make ourselves. One of them is linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid, and the other is alpha-linoleic acid, which is an omega-3 fatty acid. We have to get the amount of those fatty or the amounts of those fatty acids we need from the diet. Okay. And they're made in plants. So we get them from seeds, nuts, vegetable oils, and so on. So they are the classically essential fatty acids. They were discovered um, around about a hundred years ago in animal feeding experiments where uh, rats were fed fat-free diets and they developed um particular symptoms they didn't grow well they had skin problems they didn't reproduce well and so on and that effect was recovered by providing vegetable oils and that's how the essential fatty acids were discovered now in humans the description of essential fatty acid deficiency has been or the diagnosis has been very rare although it has been seen in some particular clinical scenarios and that's probably because most people or all people are consuming enough of the essential fatty acids, linoleic and alpha-linolenic, um, so that they don't develop deficiency symptoms. And in fact, some people argue, you know, we consume way too much linoleic acid, so we're down the other end of the spectrum. Now, <clears throat> there is a subtlety in this term of essential fatty acids because... Um, alpha-linolenic acid 
the essential omega-3 comes from plants, can be converted in our bodies to EPA and DHA. So these are the long-chain, highly bioactive omega-3s. Um, but it turns out, for various reasons, many humans are not very good at making that conversion all the way to DHA. So some people use the term essential fatty acid to also include DHA because we can't make it very easily as far as we know. Um, and we know if people consume more DHA in the diet, you know, they have more DHA in their cells and so on. So, you know, there is an argument that DHA is sort of also essential. Um, and, you know, that often is stated in the literature. Yeah, we might come back to that when we mm -hmm. talk about supplementation and vegetarians uh -huh. and vegans who yeah. Yeah. are not consuming fatty fish. I think that would be quite relevant there. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What is the reason why conversion is low? ALA to DHA and EPA. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, that's a great question. And um, it's something I've been interested in for quite a long time myself now. So um, there's a metabolic pathway that takes alpha-linolenic acid. So fatty acids are, made, are, are carbon chains, okay? So alpha-linolenic acid has 18 carbons in its chain, okay? And it has three double bonds within that chain. EPA has 20 carbons, so it's two carbons longer, and has five double bonds in the chain. And DHA has 22 carbons, so it's two carbons longer again, and has six double bonds in its chain. So this conversion from alpha-linolenic acid to EPA and then to DHA is a chemical pathway that makes the chain longer and puts more double bonds into the chain, okay? And each of those steps along the pathway, so there are several steps in this pathway, is um, carried out by an enzyme. <clears throat> now, um, those same enzymes that work on alpha-linolenic acid also work on the in the omega-6 pathway, okay? So there's competition between metabolism of omega-3, alpha-linolenic acid, and omega-6 linoleic acid. And um, one reason why the pathway of alpha-linolenic acid all the way through to DHA doesn't work so well is because the intake of linoleic acid, its competitor, is much, much higher. Okay, So there are some very nice studies, even studies in humans, where in an experimental setting, people's intake of linoleic acid has been decreased, okay? So they've been put on a diet where they're consuming less linoleic acid than normal. And what happens when you do that is actually you have more appearance of EPA, particularly in people's blood and blood cells. So I think that's a clear indication that this competition between linoleic and alpha-linolenic acid, so omega-6 and omega-3s, is a reality. And one reason why the pathway doesn't work very well seems to be that linoleic acid intakes are high. There are, so I think that is a primary reason. There are some other reasons, and one of them is some of the enzymes of that pathway um, are sensitive to insulin. So in people who are less insulin sensitive, so more insulin resistant, um, that pathway doesn't work so well. Also, some of those enzymes have micronutrients as cofactors. So I think micronutrient intake could also influence the pathway. What micronutrients would would be important? Uh, so, so I think zinc and magnesium are important cofactors for some of the enzymes. Um, that hasn't been investigated in humans, and I think, you know, it should be. So I think there are, there are several factors. Um, and then the other one, which I think is really interesting, Simon, is um, it seems that so, – so in humans, all of the relevant comparisons haven't been made, okay? But one comparison that has been made is 
whether this conversion of alpha-linolenic acid all the way through to DHA is different between young women and young men. And by young, I mean university student age, because that's the age that the study was done in. And it turned out that um, young adult women are much, much better at making their own DHA than young adult men. And it turns out that sex hormones... So I mentioned insulin as a regulator of this pathway, but sex hormones, uh, so estrogen and progesterone, are also regulators of the pathway. And um, physiologically, this makes sense because DHA is really important for brain and eye development and function. And it's really important that early in life, so before we're born and after we're born, that we get enough DHA. And therefore, it makes, I think, some sense that a woman of childbearing age would be able to make at least some of her own DHA so that the the baby before it's born and then after it's born isn't at risk of not getting enough DHA. So I think there's a physiological reason for the sex hormone um, effects on, on that pathway. So you see there's sort of, there's physiological actions through hormones, there's nutritional actions through high omega-6 and maybe low micronutrient intakes that might be important. There's probably also some other things related to age, um, which are not really very well defined. So with that in mind, are, are you sort of in the camp that we need to be conscious about not consuming too much omega-6s to the point that it starts to compete with this, the the uh, enzymes that are required to desaturate and elongate um, linoleic acid and alpha uh, linolenic acid, um, or is it about placing more emphasis on a direct source of DHA and EPA in the diet? Yeah, that, uh, that's a great question, and I think it's 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 both of those. So you ask, am I am an Am I in a camp? Um, so I, I think I probably have a foot in, in two camps, but I might have a bigger foot in, in one of those camps, I guess, if you if you look back. So I think um, we need – well, I, I think it's more helpful if we if we consume preformed EPA and DHA. I think that's, that's, that's really important. I've got no doubt about that. Um, but most people – don't do that. So if you look at what the recommendations are in any country, most people are not meeting the recommendations, probably because they're not eating enough um, fish, which, you know, is, is, a, is a choice they make. Um, so if you take not consuming preformed EPA and DHA and put that to one side, okay, that's important, but not everyone is doing that then I think we rely on our metabolism. And that's where this relationship between linoleic and alpha-linolenic acid intakes is important. And to optimize our metabolism of alpha-linolenic acid through that pathway, one thing we can do is keep an eye on our linoleic acid intake. Now, that can be a little bit tricky because lots of things that contain a lot of alpha lin or you know a reasonable amount of alpha linolenic acid also contain a lot of linoleic acid, although that's not universally true. So um, 
we need also to think about, you know, what are good sources of alpha linolenic acid. So things like, you know, flaxseed, chia seeds, stuff like that, I think we need to be thinking about and trying to cut back on the things which are really rich in linoleic acid and don't contain so much alpha linolenic acid. So, you know, some of the vegetable oils like, you know, corn oil, sunflower oil, so on, don't contain much alpha linolenic acid, but they contain a lot of linoleic acid. Right. And just to sort of emphasize something here, you're saying that dietary strategy emphasizing ALA rich foods that are somewhat not so rich in, in omega sixes and then de-emphasizing some of these super omega-6 rich foods is a strategy that's more important for someone who is not consuming enough EPA and DHA in the form of fatty fish or supplement. Yep, correct. I think I think you got it in a nutshell there. I think that's that that that's dead right. Um so if you're not um at the moment for most people, if 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 particularly fatty fish <laughs> is not something that they're into. Um, they need to take this alternative approach, which is uh, looking for sources of alpha-linolenic acid, uh, particularly where linoleic acid in, uh, content is, is not high. So helping their metabolism out, basically. There's definitely a, a lot of folks out there that would be of the view or take the position that omega-6 fats, at least at a certain dose, are inherently harmful, that they're pro-inflammatory, they cause oxidation, increased risk of atherosclerosis. All of these claims are are out there. Um, It sounds like what you're saying here is that the main issue with omega-6s is competition for important enzymes. And if you have too many omega-6s in the diet, it might affect your ability to convert ALA into DHA and EPA, which again is most important if you don't have enough EPA and DHA in the diet. But I would like to step through omega-6s in a little bit more detail and and sort of uh, think about some of the claims that are out there and whether there is any validity validity to them. You you just walked us through before the omega-3 pathway from ALA through to DHA and EPA Perhaps you could do the same with the the omega six pathway. Yeah, so it's 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 an analogous pathway. So linoleic acid, which is essential, um, but is probably well is consumed in amounts which are way beyond what are necessary to overcome essential fatty acid deficiency. That's for sure. So linoleic acid has eighteen carbons, two double bonds in its chain, and it's converted through a pathway, the same pathway as alpha-linolenic acid to EPA, uh, linoleic acid is converted to arachidonic acid, which has 20 carbons and four double bonds. So linoleic acid itself has biological activity, and arachidonic acid, its derivative, has high biological activity. And I think... Many of the arguments about um, possible problems, harms, if you like, from too much linoleic acid stem from its conversion to arachidonic acid. Because arachidonic acid, um, to paint you know, a simplistic picture, um, has activities which promote inflammation, promote 
thrombosis, that's blood clotting, uh, promote some other things. So, you know, the view of arachidonic acid is that um, it has these adverse physiological impacts and its synthesis is driven by high intake of linoleic acid. So that's where I think, you know, the balances between the omega-6 side and the omega-3 side are important. Um, so it, sort of omega-3s have their own actions, but also they're keeping the omega-6 actions in check, if you like. So so the balance between them at different points along the pathway is, is really quite important. In 2018, you wrote a, a paper with Jacqueline Innings, I oh, think yeah. if I pronounce yeah. that correctly, yeah. uh, omega-6 fatty acids and inflammation. Yes. I think that was the, the paper that actually first put you on my, my radar. And in this uh, review, you were looking at different clinical interventions, including human yes. studies where uh, humans were being fed omega-6s, either linoleic acid and or arachidonic acid and looking at inf inflammatory compounds. Mm -hmm. I was I was surprised in that study, given that arachidonic acid is a precursor to some of these, I guess, pro-inflammatory mm -hmm. compounds. I was surprised that these feeding trials, when they fed humans, again, either linoleic acid or arachidonic acid, it didn't seem to significantly increase these inflammatory compounds. Did that surprise you? In a way, yes, and but I think I'll deal with the linoleic and arachidonic acid separately from one another. Maybe so. If you if you give in a trial setting, if you give people increased amount of arachidonic acid, and that has usually been done through supplements, um, you do increase. Um, the concentrations of some compounds which are linked with inflammation. I mean, that, that's been shown a few times. I mean, not many studies have been done with arachidonic acid in adults, but that has been shown. Um, so I think there is a link, but an important subtlety here, Simon, is that our cells already contain a lot of arachidonic acid because of our high omega-6 intake. And so it's already high, and if you give people arachidonic acid as a supplement, the amount of arachidonic acid goes up only a very little bit. So you may not expect much of an impact. Now, I'm just going to go off slightly on a tangent here and then come back. So one of the things that EPA and DHA do is they decrease arachidonic acid in cell membranes, and they do that quite dramatically if you give high-dose EPA and DHA, again, as a supplement. And that's believed to be one of the main mechanisms of the anti-inflammatory effects of omega-3s, okay, this driving down of arachidonic acid. Now, what um, – so there's a gap in the literature in humans where the studies with arachidonic acid have always given more arachidonic acid. So if I give more, will effects become even more extreme, I guess? But there aren't studies where you've actually tried to reduce the amount of arachidonic acid in the diet. So going the other way, and, and you would have to do that through a dietary manipulation. Um, and so that would be interesting. So does decreasing arachidonic acid have an effect rather than 
is there an effect of giving people even more? So the hypothesis there, Philip, being that there could be a critical threshold. Yes. So you could be going from nothing to some arachidonic acid, which is currently baseline, and you've already crossed that threshold where you've cranked up inflammatory biomarkers. Yep, you, you, you've got it in one. You've got it in one. And so, so you're already, if, if you like, the system is already saturated. And, and, and the one effective way we know to counter that is to drive arachidonic acid in cell membranes down with EPA and DHA. But my point is no one has done the experiment to try to drive arachidonic acid down by decreasing arachidonic acid intake, except for one study that I'm aware of, which was done in people with arthritis by a German researcher named Olaf Adam. I think published probably maybe in the late 1990s. I can't remember exactly when. So one of the main sources of arachidonic acid is meat. Um, so what he did was he actually did an omega-3 study, and he did he gave people with arthritis omega-3s against a normal dietary background and a dietary background where they decreased their meat intake. And he found that the omega-3s were actually more effective in people who decreased meat intake compared to if they keep their meat intake steady. So um, I think that helps with this argument that decreasing arachidonic acid could be a way forward. Quick question on that, and I'll let you then slide over to linoleic acid because I know you wanted to treat them separately, but this, this kind of also ties into linoleic acid. Am I right that dietary linoleic acid doesn't have a huge effect on the amount of arachidonic acid in our cells, it's more coming from direct sources of arachidonic acid in the diet? So so th that's a really good question. So I think one of the really um, – and I don't – I can't really give you a definitive answer, Simon. So, so what we know is arachidonic acid intake in the diet is much, much lower than linoleic acid intake, okay? Um, it's higher – in most people than the intake of EPA and DHA. But our cells contain quite high amounts of arachidonic acid. So in the face of a, of a rather modest intake, our cells have a lot of arachidonic acid. And this is quite different from EPA and DHA, where I'm, I'm going to call it a really modest intake. Our cells end up with rather modest amounts of EPA and DHA. So it seems maybe without EPA and DHA, arachidonic acid is easily incorporated into cell membranes, something like that. So um, it is true that if you, and again, people have mainly studied linoleic acid by giving more, that if you give people more linoleic acid, you don't increase the arachidonic acid content of their cells. And I think it comes back to your earlier point that the system is already saturated. And again, it's quite rare for people to study what would happen if I decreased linoleic acid intake. So the emphasis often has been on giving people more of things and seeing what happens. And, and I think there should be a little bit more emphasis on taking things away and seeing what happens. Given that meat and organs and fish and seafood are probably the, the largest sources of arachidonic acid, in the in the diet, I, I actually hadn't heard this being 
discussed before what you're talking about now. Um, it, it gets me thinking though about at least anecdotally, and I haven't seen this formally studied, but where um, athletes, and we're really digressing here, but athletes re- reduce their animal food consumption, particularly older athletes, and anecdotally report better recovery and sort of things that you might associate with less inflammation. Um, just a theory that I'm kind of throwing out there. Yeah. So, so I, I think, um, you know, inflammation, like probably like a lot of physiological systems, is sort of a double-edged sword. So inflammation is part of physiology, and we need inflammation to help us deal with infections. You know, it's part of the immune system. Um, it's also part of wound healing. So at the start of wound healing, there's actually an inflammatory phase which goes away. So I think, you know, an issue is not whether inflammation is happening or not, but whether it's happening in the wrong context. So, you know, if, if we have inflammation present when it, when it shouldn't be present, I think that that is a harmful state. And what we know is many of the common conditions of lifestyle and aging have an inflammatory component. So we call that low grade, chronic low grade inflammation. And that I think is inflammation happening in the wrong context. We don't need inflammation, but it's being driven by, you know, our diet, all sorts of other things. Um, and, and over time that becomes harmful. So I think, um, you know, I could believe that increase, that, that decreasing intake of foods that contain arachidonic acid could, um, aid recovery um, because I think you're not completely removing arachidonic acid from the system. You're just decreasing it. So maybe you're taking everything back to the state, which is promoting recovery rather than. um... So I mentioned wound healing. So inflammation is an important part of wound healing. And if you, if you don't have enough inflammation, you don't get that inflammatory phase. You don't heal wounds. On the other hand, if you have too much inflammation, that's also bad news for wound healing. So this is one of the problems with, um, you know, with uh, hard to heal uh, wounds in, in diabetics, for example. So there's like a, there's a window of inflammatory opportunity, if you like. And if you're either side of that window, the situation isn't good. So I think, you know, altering diet could move us to a more optimal place within the window. It could actually take us outside of the window one way or another, and we wouldn't want those things. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, it does. What did you want to add with regards to linoleic acid and those, those studies looking at feeding humans linoleic acid and how that affects inflammation? So, so I think um, in nutrition, in general, people have always, you know, and I am generalizing here, <laughs> But people have, 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 you know, if they want to study the impact of something, most often they add, they add more. You give more. And the question in reality is probably actually what would happen if you, if, if people ate less. Um, so that's been much understudied for linoleic acid. And I think one of the issues of studies where you give more linoleic acid is the pathway probably all pathways are saturated with the amount of linoleic acid that people are already consuming. So you don't actually see much of an effect. Um, Of course, when people 
were extremely excited by cholesterol. There were some nice studies done where people did dietary exchanges of saturates, saturated fatty acids for linoleic acid and so on. And, you know, that's where the whole cholesterol lowering idea of linoleic acid came about because people actually did those studies of replacing saturates for linoleic acid. Um, but I think, you know, I think to really answer this question, we need to do some more human trials that are asking the right questions. But, you know, it, it's, um, if I'm honest with you, it's really hard to get, um, get the funding to do some of those things, even though they are important questions, I think. Yeah. Um, the, the baseline intake of the compounds seems critically important. I mean, that goes beyond just fatty acids. I, I think the same stands for many different areas of nutrition science, looking at things like vitamin D supplementation, for example. Is that effective? Well, what was the vitamin D status of the subjects at the start of the study? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, people, people have this idea that, you know, nutrition is easy. You know, nutrition science is easy and all you've got to do is give people nutrient X and you'll find out what it does. But, you know, nutrition science is not like, um, you know, the science of the pharmaceutical industry because we don't have, no one is nutritionally naive of anything that we've been talking about. So, you know, you've always got some EPA and DHA or omega or, or vitamin D or whatever in, in your system. So you never have the naive state. Um, and what we know now is the effect of a lot of these bioactive nutrients is, is partly related to what the starting status is. What's the baseline status? So, you know, if you're already replete in something, do you really expect that giving more is going to make, make you more healthy? So there's more research needed. But if you were to hypothesize as someone that's been researching this for 30 plus years, I think you said at the beginning, you are across the biochemistry of the pathways, the animal studies, the human studies that are available. The, there's long-term observational studies that look at tissue levels of these different fatty acids and, and health outcomes, which I'm sure you're across. Do you think the typical person in a developed country, Western country, eating a, a Western diet, would stand to benefit from reducing omega-6s in their diet? I think they would. And I think they would because that would promote synthesis of EPA and maybe DHA. So I think they would benefit from a higher omega-3 status as a result of lowering linoleic acid intake or actually arachidonic acid intake as well. Um, and, you know, there's no, there's no fear in the Western population of linoleic acid deficiency because, you know, intakes are whatever, 10 times higher, 20 times higher than are needed to avoid deficiency. So that tells us that actually we could lower intake quite markedly without any concern of adverse effect. Um, of course, if we if we lowered linoleic acid and increased um, saturated fat as a replacement, you know that would not be an ideal scenario. 
Um, you know, so we have to look, we have to replace it with something. Um, and so, you know, maybe an ideal scenario would be um, re- would be monounsaturated fatty acids or alpha linolenic acid as as a replacement for linoleic acid. So, in terms of a substitution, I guess the question here is: Where are what foods are providing most of the omega sixes that people are getting? And then from there, we could think about what substitutions would be practical. This maybe maybe there's a a geographical influence on foods providing linoleic acid. Obviously, you know the primary source is vegetable oils. Um, many common vegetable oils, you know, corn oil, sunflower oil, even um, you know other oils that contain other fatty acids contain linoleic acid. Um, you know, spreads made from those oils, but of course, those oils are also used a lot in um, in uh, the food industry. Um, so you know, you get vegetable oils in lots of foods, uh, but also you know, in some places they're used a lot in um, in animal feeds. Um, so you know, you end up with um, with other um foods that contain linoleic acid so it's well described that the linoleic acid intake that linoleic acid intake has increased um i mean the data i'm most familiar with is is western countries um over the course of you know the 20th century which was partly through introduction of vegetable oils and spreads but also use of vegetable oils in in the food industry in in farming and so on um so for example feeding soy to cattle um so but you know i think the thing that if you're at a supermarket you would mainly be looking at is you know which what what vegetable oils am i using um so can i use a vegetable oil that maybe is lower in linoleic acid, higher in alpha-linolenic acid, higher in monounsaturates. Um, so olive oils, for example, um, you know, canola oil, uh, what we call rapeseed oil here in in Europe, um, is lower in linoleic acid, contains a reasonable amount of alpha-linolenic acid, contains monounsaturates. So those, I think those sorts of choices people can think about. Right, or avocado oil. I think yeah. macadamia oil is pretty similar. They can be a little bit more expensive. Uh, I've spoken about canola oil quite a few times on this show, and it, for whatever reason, it always seems to be a little bit controversial. Um, but I'm glad that you added that in there. So it seems like your position, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is is not so much that the omega-6s are inherently bad or toxic or inflammatory but if we crank them up too much it could affect that omega-3 pathway which then affects their their sort of uh anti-inflammatory effects yeah i think um i mean i think that's one way to summarize it um certainly so, so in our research we've looked a lot at um relationships between arachidonic acid content of cells and the inflammatory response of those cells. And there is a relationship. Um, 
In other words, the higher the arachidonic acid content, the higher, let's call it the inflammatory potential of the cells. And therefore, I think ways of controlling arachidonic acid content are really important. And, you know, to me, the primary way of doing that is to increase intake of EPA and DHA. You know, that's, that is the most effective impact. And maybe that works better than lowering linoleic acid because of this threshold effect that we already talked about, that you really have to lower linoleic acid a lot if you're going to decrease arachidonic acid. And, and I'm not sure anyone has ever shown that lowering linoleic acid will decrease arachidonic acid in, you know, anything other than a really controlled cell culture setting. Whereas omega-3s, you know, you, you can take modest dose omega-3s and you decrease arachidonic acid levels. So increasing EPA and DHA will help decrease arachidonic levels. Do you, do you think it's a, it would be a, a good idea to, for example, reduce certain animal foods in exchange for beans, or is that just something that you just can't see people doing from an adherence point of view? Would it be effective? Well, some people are doing that because, you know, people are moving away from, um, are making a choice to move away from animal, animal based foods towards more plant based foods. So people are doing that and, you know, apparently in increasing numbers and so on. What, what I don't know is what the impact of that is on their arachidonic acid levels. I mean, that would be really interesting to look at, Simon, for sure. I do think that arachidonic acid intake has a relationship with arachidonic acid levels in cells and therefore strategies that decrease arachidonic acid intake should decrease the amount in cells, although I would need to look for evidence of that. And that could be, you know, that could be part of the health promoting um, effects of a more plant-based diet, you know, less inflammation, less tendency to thrombosis, stuff like that. Something else that just popped into my mind, I read an article and my interest in this article came from, I was thinking about overfishing. So I was thinking about this problem that we have that EPA and DHA seem to be very beneficial. We would love the entire world population to have optimal intakes. At the same time, we have this overfishing and biodiversity loss uh, problem that we're trying to solve. And I came across an article, and again, this will be controversial. There are some words here that might trigger people. Um, some scientists looking at genetically modifying plants and sort of, from my understanding, was using yeast and algae to insert some DNA that would cause those plants that already make ALA to convert that to DHA and EPA via those enzymes that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, th that's great. Thank you for bringing, bringing that up, Simon. So this is one of the things we're very interested in because you're right that um, the real big problem with EPA and DHA is, you know, the richest sources are particular types of fish, what we call fatty fish. And we have, we do have a problem. People have already calculated, you know, 10 years ago or more that actually we don't have enough. You know, if everyone was going to follow the recommendations, for EPA and DHA intake, you know, we don't have enough fish available to do that. Um, so I think 
you know, this is not. I, I, I'm 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 talking about from a scientific point of view something which is not a sustainable approach, which is preformed EPA and DHA from seafood. Okay, so we have to think about alternative sources. I think, and you know, they have to be sustainable. They have to be you know clean, um, and you know they do have to be affordable. <clears throat> and there are two. Two approaches, and one of them is um, algae. So, um, what we haven't mentioned so far is that fish, like us, are also not good at making their own EPA and DHA. And the the omega threes in fish ultimately are made by microalgae and pass through the food chain. Okay. Um, so algae are really the big global producers of, of EPA and DHA. Um, and we could imagine um, cultivating algae to produce EPA and DHA. That is done. So the infant formula industry, for example, um, a lot of the DHA in infant formula is, is of algal sources. There are algal supplements available. Um, of course, you know, the amount... Is, um, is is modest compared to, you know, the seafood sources, but algae are one option. And the other is what you mentioned, Simon, which is genetically modified plants. So I mentioned already that plants make linoleic and alpha-linolenic acids, and most plants don't take the pathway beyond that. Um and that's why, you know, nuts, seeds, vegetable oils, all the things we've talked about are rich in linoleic and alpha-linolenic acid, but, uh, you know, don't contain um, EPA and DHA. So you're right that researchers have genetically modified um, some plants uh, using genes that come from um, yeast or worms or algae. Um, so that those plants carry out the conversion. And um, it is possible to generate a plant oil, which is very similar to a standard um, fish oil, which is, you know, the basic supplement that you can buy in um, in the chemist shop. Um, so, you know, genetic modification is a way to produce EPA and DHA. Um, it is a way to produce them on land, sustainably, um, contaminant-free, um, and, you know, I guess affordably. Uh, you know, but the issue is some people um, and some regulators, are, you know, are not fond of GM. So I think that's that's the tricky one for the GM oils. What would you say to someone who is fearful or just scared of genetic modification when it comes to food there are already genetically there are already foods that come from genetically modified organisms in our human food chain more so in some geographies than others um but you know they do already exist um the oils so so one issue i guess is about the environment so, you know, the spreading of genetically modified um, DNA in the environment. So while plants are being farmed, for example, 
Um, so the carriage of that modified DNA outside of the farm. Um, so I think, you know, that is a concern some people have. I think the other one is what most people would sort of be their immediate response is, you know, they're consuming modified DNA and that might do something in their cells. Now, I think there are a couple of, of aspects to consider there. Firstly, um, the oils we're talking about um, are oils that come from genetically modified plants, but they are still just vegetable oils. They don't contain any, D8, any DNA. Um, you know, that's left behind. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that every day we are consuming non-genetically modified DNA that isn't of human origin. You know, we're eating plant and animal DNA every time we eat a meal. So, you know, we're exposed to DNA um, of non-human origin all the time, although that's not genetically modified. So, I mean, I think, you know, this is a debate. Um, you know, I'm not an expert in the debate or the regulations around genetic modification of foods, but it's something we have to talk about, um, not just about genetically modified oils that can provide EPA and DHA, which is the focus of our discussion, but, you know, how we can have um, good quality, nutritious, safe food um, for the global population. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about reducing omega-6 fats, linoleic acid, that it might not be a great idea if the substitution was something rich in saturated fats. And I presume that's your view because of the data that exists with regards to cardiovascular disease and that such a substitution would increase someone's risk of cardiovascular uh, events. Um but there is that idea out there that I mentioned at the start of this conversation that some people hold the view that a, a diet that's rich in linoleic acid will result in uh, an increased number or amount of polyunsaturated fats in the cell membranes, but also in lipoproteins, low-density lipoproteins specifically. Um, these polyunsaturated fats are easily oxidized and when they do oxidize they can become injurious to the endothelium they can penetrate the artery wall damage it and sort of kickstart the inflammatory process that leads to atherosclerosis now from my understanding the substitution studies and the outcome data would refute that position um, but it is a position that is held and i wonder what your views on that are yeah so um i think this is i mean it's a, it's an interesting argument the one about saturates versus linoleic um i believe the data that show if you replace saturates or some saturates with linoleic acid you lower ldl cholesterol concentration um it is true that you enrich LDL in you that you can enrich LDL in linoleic acid, and that at least in a test tube it becomes more prone to oxidation when that happens. 
I'm not sure that that happens actually in the human body. Um, so it's more prone to oxidation, but I'm not sure that happens actually in vivo. Um, I think another element of this is that whenever you have polyunsaturated fatty acids around, typically you also have more antioxidants around. So, for example, vegetable oils are richer in some antioxidants than than animal fats, for example. And, you know, that's part of the protective mechanism. So, again, I think the emphasis here has been on on increasing things and what are the possible harmful effects of increasing. And I think an important question now, as I've already said, is actually what is the effect of decreasing some of these things and getting balances right? Um and, you know, you could argue that in all of these changes, there's like a risk and a benefit and you've got to weigh them up. So if you if you believe the literature, um, if you substitute linoleic acid for saturates, you would increase LDL cholesterol by having more saturates. So you've got more there, but it's a little bit less prone to oxidation. So, you know, which of those things is, is more important? And I guess trials would say um, having less LDL cholesterol is an important um, effect to achieve to promote cardiovascular health. Particularly in the context, it would seem, of a diet that's really rich in antioxidants. I, I, think, I think the benefits you might see a bigger overall benefit across the whole health space if you had if you had a, an adequate intake of antioxidants yes i think that would be an extension of the statement i just made yeah yeah so having more polyunsaturates when you have an antioxidant poor diet you know i think that's not as good as if you've got an antioxidant adequate diet so aside from inflammation which we've spoken about and cholesterol are there any other cardiometabolic risk factors that polyunsaturated fats affect one of them which i mentioned in passing was blood clotting so thrombosis um and again you know blood clotting is a double-edged sword so you know a blood clot blood clot can kill you but also you can bleed to death because your blood hasn't clotted so again there's a window of physiological relevance for blood clotting just as there is for inflammation and one of the um effects of arachidonic acid is is you know is a prothrombotic action so you know increasing blood clotting and one of the effects of omega-3s is to counter that so they have an anti-thrombotic action and actually when omega-3s were first shown to reduce cardio or reduce coronary heart disease mortality going way back to the early 1980s, you know, the main mechanism of action was believed to be this antithrombotic action. So again, I think getting the balance between those different polyunsaturated fatty acids keeps us in the right window. So I think that's one. And the other thing for omega-3s is, you know, they affect heart physiology. They affect heart rhythm. They affect heart rate variability, uh, both of them in ways that are considered to be, um, you know, promoting cardiac health. Um, vascular function, 
which I think you mentioned the endothelium in passing, Simon. So, you know, vascular function, uh, so the way blood vessel walls are, are behaving uh, is impacted by these fatty acids, maybe in part due to things to do with inflammation, uh, but maybe other things as well. So I think there's a whole raft of activities. And then, you know, we've got to think maybe about individual tissues. So what are these fatty acids doing in adipose tissue, for example? What are they doing in the liver? Um, so it's it's about, um, you know, if you think about the liver and again, omega-3s, it's sort of promoting metabolic homeostasis, if you, write, if you like. So promoting fatty acid oxidation, decreasing triglyceride synthesis. So that's one way that they might decrease liver fat deposition. It's one way that they decrease blood triglyceride concentrations, which is a really important effect of omega-3s. So I think they have effects across the board. Um, so omega-3s, I mean, have effects across the board promoting, you know, cardiometabolic health. And coming back to everything we've said before, um, one of the things that limits their action, limits their synthesis, is having too much omega-6s. So we can promote these effects, I think, also through a strategy that would decrease omega-6s, um, maybe at the same time as increasing omega-3 intake. You mentioned the liver there, and that gets me thinking about insulin resistance. And I've seen a little bit of data out there looking at dietary substitution, but what happens to insulin resistance if you swap calories from saturated saturates or polyunsaturated fats? Is that something that you've researched or read from other groups? I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I, obviously I've seen papers. So um, observational, so, so epidemiological studies, usually in big populations where researchers have looked at either intake of fatty acids or blood blood status of fatty acids and risk of developing insulin resistance. Those studies suggest that both linoleic acid and EPA and DHA decrease risk of insulin resistance developing. So that seems to be maybe it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid effect versus something else, which would normally be saturates. So I think the epidemiology says that those polyunsaturated fatty acids, both omega-6 and omega-3s, decrease risk of insulin resistance developing. What about blood pressure? I know you mentioned endothelium yeah. oh, yeah. function, yeah. but is there an effect of polyunsaturated fats yeah. on blood pressure? So if someone yeah. has high blood pressure, could it be that increasing polyunsaturated fats could help lower their blood pressure? Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm sorry if I forgot about that. So um, there have been a lot of studies... So I know I talk a lot about EPA and DHA, Simon, and that's because there have been hundreds, probably thousands of human trials of EPA and DHA because they're easy to do because you can give people supplements. So, you know, if you want to do a research study, you just have to get hold of a whole lot of omega-3 supplements and um, give them to people and you've got your trial. It's hard to do that with most other fatty acids. Now, the point there, of course, is you're adding these on top of people's diets. So you're not, it's not a dietary change. It's the use of supplements. But that's just an aside. But what this means is people have researched multiple 
cardiovascular or cardiometabolic risk factors, blood lipids. So I mentioned triglycerides and triglyceride lowering. We've talked about LDL. Um, we've talked about inflammation, um, heart rate, heart rate variability. But people have also, there are a lot of studies on blood pressure. So EPA and DHA do have a blood pressure lowering effect. It's very small. So I think usually it's about two or three millimeters of mercury seems to be what comes out in individual trials and in meta-analyses. So this isn't, it's nothing like you would get with an antihypertensive drug, for example. Um, but it's a small blood pressure lowering effect. And you could argue that someone who uses omega-3 supplements or eats a good amount of oily fish right across their adult life life course gets multiple small benefits and together these lower their risk of developing cardiometabolic disease so actually they might get a very small blood pressure lowering effect right across adulthood um, and you know they might start as having normal blood pressure and this makes it less likely that they would get into the hypertensive state um, it's a modest effect um, you know they would have lower triglycerides they would have higher hdl they would have lower inflammation and all the things we've talked about and some of these would be small effects but you know these are multiple small effects that put people on a better trajectory and again if you look at epidemiology it's quite clear that there is a relationship between higher epa and dha intake or higher blood levels of epa and dha and long-term risk of particularly coronary heart disease but cardiometabolic disease in general and i think the explanation for that is these multiple modest effects which together sum to quite a big effect on on the risk yeah that's a good reminder so there's there's cumulative effects here and benefits from shifting different risk factors in the right direction blood pressure inflammation cholesterol perhaps insulin resistance etc and and to your point about you know, doing this early in life I'm assuming what you're getting at there is the importance of lifetime exposure. Yeah. So I think, yeah, so I think that's really important. Um, and what's clear from the literature is, um, so association studies, of course, have, have their issue. And there's always, you know, are they, can they really demonstrate a cause and effect relationship, which, you know, they can't, they can, demonstrate an association and people can uh, make that association more robust through controlling for multiple other factors that might be involved, um, statistically controlling, I mean. But, but the epidemiology of omega-3 intake is really strong. <laughs> and it's actually stronger than the effect seen if you aggregate randomized controlled trials for most outcomes and the reason there i think is you have 
even a modest but long, very long period exposure. Whereas when people do trials, you know, they might do a trial for eight weeks or 12 weeks. And, and you know, it's really hard. I mean, you can get triglyceride lowering in 12 weeks. That's not an issue. Um, you can get, if you give a sufficient dose, you can get an effect on inf inflammatory markers and some of the other things we've talked about. But, you know, even a high dose for eight or 12 weeks is very different from a modest dose for 20 years. So, so I think the overall exposure we have to keep into account. And my own view is, you know, we should have long-term exposure to EPA and DHA if we're really going to get the benefit from that. It's a similar story if you look at cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. If you look at the Mendelian randomization studies that look at people who win the genetic lottery, Yep. And they have this super low cholesterol level from birth. So they have this huge lifetime exposure. Their risk reduction is far greater than someone enrolled in a pharmaceutical trial yep. at age 60 who was in the trial for five years. Yeah. 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 So I think it's, it, this is a difference between, um, you know, regular maintenance on your car and waiting for your car to break down and then trying to get it fixed. And, you know, you take it into the mechanic and he says, look, this is just, um, this is a pile of junk. I'm not going to touch it. So I think this regular maintenance by which I mean, you know, we're talking about fatty acids and I'm focusing a lot on EPA and DHA. They are part of a healthy diet, I think. So I think, you know, regular long-term exposure to a more healthy diet and a more healthy lifestyle is is much better than waiting for the damage to happen, trying to fix it for sure. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to fix it, but but you know you shouldn't wait for your body to break down to do something about it. Act as early as possible. You said that you said the epidemiology is strong when you pull the randomized controlled trials looking at EPA and DHA. There's a, a modest effect. I had Bill Harris on. It's got to be a year or two ago, and and I've had conversations with others and I've got their view on why there seems to be some mixed results. If you look at the individual studies looking at EPA and DHA and uh, all of these guests shared their ideas and spoke to things like the dose or the type of omega-3 or baseline fish intake, things like of that nature. But I'd love to hear your view. Um, why? Why do you think there are some seemingly at least on face value some some mixed results and is it is it something that is actually easily explained when you understand the the studies and their methodology yeah so it is true that the literature is mixed you know um it would be it would be uh you know dishonest not not to say that um and we have to try to work out why that is and um there isn't an easy answer. There isn't an easy answer. So undoubtedly dose. So, so normally we're talking about supplementation trials of EPA and DHA of, of modest duration. Although, of course, there are some trials that are years long now. Um, so dose is undoubtedly important. So I've always been convinced and we have done dose response studies that, you know, the higher the dose, the bigger the effect. And, you know, we can demonstrate that with some of the outcomes we've measured, like inflammatory markers, stuff like that. Um, and just going back to what I already mentioned, 
there's a very clear relationship between the dose of EPA and DHA that people consume and the amount of EPA and DHA in their cell membranes, but also the amount of arachidonic acid in their cell membranes. So as EPA and DHA are going up, arachidonic acid is going down in a dose-dependent fashion. So dose is undoubtedly important. On, on the other hand, if you look in the literature, you know, you find studies using a reasonable dose that don't show benefits, and you can find low-dose studies that do find benefits. So dose, is, a, I think, is an important consideration, but it's not the only one. Duration, obviously, is important. So if you do a week-long study or a two-week study, I think you're not going to see a lot uh, compared to if you do a six-month study. And again, it comes back to my central thesis that these fatty acids have got to get into cell membranes. And we know there's a time-related aspect to that. So duration is important. Dose is important. I think starting omega-3 status is important. So there's a very interesting study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine where pregnant women were given omega-3 supplements or placebo during pregnancy, and then um, asthma was studied in the offspring right out to five years. And the children of mothers who took, who were in the omega-3 group um, during pregnancy overall, were less likely, it was around about 30%, I think the detail doesn't matter, but were less likely to develop asthma from two years out to five years of age, okay? But then what the authors did is something that most people don't do, and it may be they were asked about this during the review process, I don't know, but they looked at the mother's omega-3 status prior to supplementation, and if the mothers had high omega-3 status prior to supplementation, there was no benefit to the children. If they had low omega-3 status prior to supplementation, the benefit in the children was actually, obviously it was bigger than the average. So I think starting status is also important. Um, there are other, I think there are other aspects, what you're actually looking at. I think there are some physiological outcomes that are more sensitive to omega-3s than others. I've mentioned triglyceride lowering several times. I think blood triglycerides are very sensitive to omega-3s. Um, so you can get an effect there more easily than you can on other things. Um, but I think there might be other factors. Body fatness, for example. So, you know, people who have higher body fat, I think, don't respond so well to omega-3s, and that might be because the omega-3s are, you know, taken up into adipose tissue, and they're not used for other things in the body. So I think there are a lot of factors that might explain um, inconsistencies in the literature, and, um, you know, it means we've got to try to tease these out. I mean, you mentioned, uh, just the last thing, Simon, you mentioned Mendelian randomization uh, a little while ago, and there are quite a few studies now emerging th with um, Mendelian randomization of omega-3 status, and, you know, they all seem to be um, suggesting that the genetic prediction of higher omega-3 status is associated with multiple benefits. Um, 
So I think, you know, the evidence, there's new types of evidence emerging, um, but it's the trials that have the inconsistency. So you're right, we have to delve into that. But I think it's multiple factors that we have to tease out. So if we bring this back to the listener and we pretend that we're at dinner with whoever is hearing this right now and I'm hearing everything that you just said then and I'm I'm sort of left thinking, well, I just want to know, should I eat more fish? Should I supplement? And if I'm going to supplement, how much should I take? And at least my my brain here initially really zooms in on omega-3 status which you said a few times there and first point of call if someone has access to it going out and measuring omega-3 status and then using that as a way of at least understanding their baseline level and then thinking about we've spoken about a number of things you said you think increasing epa and dha is probably the smartest move there could be also some benefits up for grabs for lowering omega-6s if someone can't get a direct source of EPA, um, DHA. but And I have this test in front of me and I've never done it and this is not a plug. I have no affiliation with this company. I won't even mention the name. But I'm going to measure my omega-3 index. Is this going to give me an accurate sort of reflection of the DHA and EPA that's in my cells? And what do I do with this information when I get it back? What is uh, less than optimal reading and where do I want to to get that to such that it would be considered or deemed to be optimal? Yeah, yeah, good question. I think you're right. So um, I've mentioned several times that um, the importance of omega-3 status, and by that I'm really meaning the amount of EPA and DHA in in blood or in blood cells or even in tissues, but, you know, we don't measure that routinely. So that is a reflection of EPA and DHA intake. So we can get a feel on whether our intake is is adequate or not um, by having our omega-3s measured in, in blood. And you mentioned you'd had Bill Harris on, and Bill is one of the people who started um, – uh, sort of validated marker of status, which, you know, he called omega-3 index, which is EPA plus DHA in red blood cells. And, you know, there are particular cutoffs. So below four and a half is, is bad and above eight and a half is what we should really be going for. Um, and, you know, Bill has done, Bill and others has done a lot of work relating that marker of status to cardiometabolic outputs and outcomes and biomarker outcomes. So it's pretty clear what that relationship is. So I think people could have their blood omega-3 status measured. And, you know, if that's done by a reputable organization, they will give you a feel for where you are, maybe according to a traffic light system or something like that. And, you know, you can test improving that through, you know, eating more fish or decreasing the linoleic acid intake or taking omega-3 supplements and see whether you've moved yourself up in the status marker. And by by um, extension, if you did that, you would be lowering your risk of cardiometabolic disease. 
So I think, you know, for me, the primary ways of doing that, um, putting aside our discussion about sustainability and so on, would be increasing more, uh, increasing intake of, of oily fish, for example. Um, so things like, you know, salmon, mackerel, sardines, um, maybe using omega-3 supplements, maybe trying, looking for sources of alpha-linolenic acid and trying to decrease the linolenic acid-rich oils at the same time. So those are strategies people could take and they could monitor that through the sort of testing kit that you were talking about, Simon. Right. So just to, to kind of um, emphasize that last point you were talking there will mostly be achieved through eating less ultra-processed foods that contain these omega-6-rich seed oils um, or cooking with less of these omega-6-rich seed oils and instead using canola or olive or avocado, which we spoke about before. Um, if someone is going to uh, consume fatty fish or take a supplement, what amount of fish would provide the sort of optimal amount of DHA and EPA? What does that look like? And then maybe we can think about a supplement as well. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, at a minimum, people should be eating fatty fish once a week. Um, my own view is we should really be doing that maybe two or three times a week regularly. And, you know, you can mix up the fish you're using. So you could have salmon once, you could have sardines once, you could have something else like mackerel once. These are all really tasty, tasty fish. Um, and, of course, you're using those in place of um, – maybe sources of, of arachidonic acid, so meat. Um, so I think that's the sort of fish intake I would be talking about. And and that will be giving you, um, you know, close to um, probably a gram of EPA and DHA a day. We haven't really spoken specifically about a dose yet, but um, so you can, you can achieve that through, through diet for sure. So one gram of EPA and DHA a day, a day, and that's that's the uh, fish route for those that are eating seafood. Ansel Keys would be smiling right now because it sounds like you're describing the Mediterranean diet a little bit here. If 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 folks are not eating seafood uh, for ethical or environmental reasons and or taste, and they would rather um, take a supplement. Again, is the is the target that one gram a day of DHA and EPA? And when you're looking at that supplement on shelf, do you need to consider the amount of EPA and DHA because that often differs between brands? Yeah. So, so you know, I've come to one gram a day, and that that is, you know, that's my, if you like, my unofficial <laughs> recommendation. Um, but you know, that's the sort of number that you know, I would normally be, be thinking of. Um, it's higher than, you know, most recommendations that are out there from governmental bodies, but I think, you know, they're a bit modest. So if that's the sort of intake I'm recommending from fish, then obviously I need to be recommending that from a supplement if that's what people are choosing to do. Um, so you have to look at the EPA and DHA content of any supplement that you might be choosing. I think 
you know, you're helped if you um, look for a concentrate. Uh, so is it 45% EPA and DHA? Is it 60% EPA and DHA? Something like that. Um, because most standard fish oils, particularly, you know, cheaper, less expensive uh, ones you might see, you know, maybe they only contain 30% EPA and DHA. So 70% of what's in the capsule is not omega-3s, and you're not interested in that. So I would look for concentrates um, and make sure, you know, you might have to take a couple of supplements a day to get up to my level of, of one gram. But I would I would really focus on EPA and DHA content of a supplement if that's the route people are going down. Let's say someone's eating, uh, regularly eating fatty fish, or they're doing the DHA EPA supplementation protocol that you've just outlined, but they have very little uh, ALA in their diet. Is is ALA inherently important, and does it have any sort of biological functions that um, that require us to consume it, even? within the context of someone who is getting enough direct source of DHA and EPA and therefore doesn't need to worry about ALA converting to those longer chain omega-3s? Yeah, that is a really good question, Simon. So so I think, so it's been really hard to ascribe biological actions to alpha-linolenic acid. And most people consider that its role is to support this conversion that I talked about right at the beginning of, of the show. So its role is actually acting as a precursor of EPA and DHA. Having said that, there are chemical mediators that are produced from alpha linolenic acid that seem to have biological action, um, just like there are chemical mediators produced from EPA and DHA that have biological action. So it might be that some actions of alpha linolenic acid emerge, but right now its main functionality is as a, as a, as a, um, well, maybe it has two functionalities. One is as a precursor to EPA and DHA, but also attempting to limit linoleic acid conversion. Um, in the same way that I mentioned linoleic acid limited alpha linoleic acid conversion. Um, but I think, you know, the statement that people who are consuming a high level of EPA and DHA either through fish or through supplements have a lower need for alpha linolenic acid. I would support that that statement for sure. Um, but we mustn't forget, you know, that omega-6s limit the action of omega-3s. So as well as these strategies, we want to look at sources of linoleic acid as well. So we're in the supplement store and we're, lo we're looking for an EPA DHA supplement I think if I recall correctly, in my conversation with Bill, we spoke about different forms of these fatty acids. So there's the trigly triglyceride phospholipid form, which is how these would come in food, in fatty fish. And then there's an ethyl ester form. Do you have a view on what form would be better absorbed or more effective or what someone should look out for on the bottle? Yeah. So... um as far as I'm aware, most supplements will be either the triglyceride or phospholipid form. Um, it is possible that there are supplements of ethyl esters. Now, um, 
all of these forms have to be digested, okay, to make the fatty acids available to us. And it's really important, and I don't know if Bill mentioned this, but it's really important that people take their supplements at the same time as they have a meal because because the when you eat a meal you induce all the digestive actions and there's pretty good evidence that if people take supplements and that includes ethylesters and triglycerides um, without a meal you limit the availability so whatever supplement people are using they should take it either with or around the time of a meal um, there is some evidence that ethyl esters are less well absorbed than triglycerides and phospholipids. Some people say the phospholipids are the best absorbed. I think in healthy people taking supplements with a meal, it's not going to make a lot of difference, the chemical form. And ultimately, if you do measure your omega-3 status, which is why I, I think it's a good idea to do, and I think the test that I got was about $40. So it's a cost, but it's not incredibly inaccessible to many people is that you can go away implement whatever protocol it is whether it's eating fatty fish or a supplement a new supplement and then retest and to my understanding you would want to wait sort of three to four months before you you retest that's right yeah i would agree completely so i think i sort of made this point before that people could have a test um decide on a strategy adopt that strategy and they could retest. And I think you're dead right. I would wait three or four months, um, making sure I adhere to whatever my strategy is and then, and then retest. And that three or four months is all about the timing that it takes for omega threes to go up in particularly in red blood cells, which is a good marker of tissue levels. Another question that I think people may have here is how to store DHA and EPA supplements um, there's a lot of talk about these polyunsaturated fats being unstable and um, not exposing them to heat should these be stored in your view in the cupboard in ambient sort of temperatures or in the fridge yeah um i'm not I, to be honest i'm not an expert on the storage effects but i think you're right these are potentially unstable fatty acids and therefore i would store them um not in a hot place and i would store them away from light so i would i i think they're going to last better if you put them in a reasonably cool cupboard um i wouldn't store them in the fridge i don't see any need for that um but i wouldn't store them in a really hot place in sunlight either and would algae oil be just as effective as fish oil if someone's considering that yeah so um what we haven't talked about simon is whether epa and dha are different from one another and um they have their own biological actions and dha um i think i mentioned in passing is very very important for brain development and visual development so dha is super important early in life uh, you could argue that pre-pregnancy and in pregnancy, um, a woman might think about a supplement which is richer in DHA than EPA, and there are some DHA algal oils out there. Um, I think outside of pregnancy and early life, 
um, both of them are important. So I would look at um, a supplement that, that contained either both EPA and DHA. Uh, that isn't to say, so there are some algal oils which are mainly DHA. Um, they're also effective at raising, obviously, omega-3 status in the blood. Um, they lower triglycerides and all of those things. And I think one of the joys of algal-based supplements, of course, is they can be used by vegetarians, vegans, without um, concern. Uh, they're also, you know, they're not um, fish-sourced, which, you know, uh, some people might worry about from a sustainability point of view, as we mentioned. So I think there are there are benefits of uh, there there are um, benefits of algal oils. Um, they have the same benefits biologically, but there are some um, uh, acceptability aspects of algal oils that standard fish oils don't have. What about DPA? I know that's another long form, long yeah. chain. Omega yeah. three that gets a lot less airtime, and I have seen a few different brands yeah. promoting the fact that their formula also contains DPA. Is is a formula that contains DPA superior in any way to a formula that just contains DHA and EPA? Yeah. All other things equal. Yep, yeah, that's a great question. So we've talked about the pathway alpha linolenic acid to EPA, and then I mentioned going to DHA, but in between EPA and DHA in that pathway is DPA, docosapentanoic acid. That has um, 22 carbons and uh, five double bonds. So it's on the pathway. Um, undoubtedly, DPA has biological actions, but DPA is way understudied compared to EPA and DHA. Um, there are... I think a small number of human studies of DPA. Uh, I think whether it offers any superiority over EPA and DHA, I think it's too early to say. Um, but, you know, um, you've got DPA in your blood, you've got DPA in your cells, and there is DPA probably in most omega-3 supplements, but there will be some supplements that are richer than others. But I think uh, I I don't think anyone would be in a position to say DPA has a particular superiority because that isn't yet known. Right, and the, and if your supplement contains EPA, what you're saying is that that EPA will act as a precursor. It does to yep. DPA. It does, yes. So if you give people pure EPA supplement, which we have done, um, you get higher EPA in people's blood, but you also get the build up of DPA as well. I had a conversation with a cardiologist who uh, is certainly uh, an advocate for DHA and EPA supplementation, but he, he, he mentioned, if I recall correctly, that fish or algae oil could raise cholesterol levels. Is that something that you've seen? I've mentioned a few times already that one of the things that EPA and DHA do is lower triglycerides. So there's no doubt they lower triglycerides. Um, they also uh, raise HDL cholesterol. That That's quite clear. Um, they also, and I think this is particularly true of DHA, not EPA, um, raise LDL cholesterol a small amount, but 
that's been consistently shown. But one of the things that seems to happen is the size of LDL particles becomes bigger. Um, and you mentioned earlier on about LDL getting into the blood vessel wall. And it seems this bigger LDL, because it's bigger, um, it, it's harder to get into the blood vessel wall. So some people have argued that this LDL raising effect of DHA in particular is linked with bigger LDL and is actually protective, not not harmful, if that makes sense to you. Yep, a lot of sense. The other sort of uh, risks or potential risks with um, DHA EPA supplementation that I've seen people talking about are increased risk of bleeding and atrial fibrillation. Are they are they worth us just quickly talking about so people kind of understand what that risk looks like and maybe who should uh, who should be considering that more so than others? Yeah. So the bleeding one, I think, is relatively easy for me to talk about. So I mentioned earlier on that omega-3s have this antithrombotic action. So um, they decrease blood clotting um, and um, increase bleeding time. Um, but this requires quite a high dose. Um, and I don't think... So there, there are some... Um, semi-systematic reviews. I don't know if there's a systematic review of omega-3s in bleeding time being published recently. But there's some semi-systematic reviews that have looked at um, this question of bleeding. And it doesn't, at, at any dose that we've been talking about, any reasonable dose, there isn't an effect on bleeding. And in fact, Bill Harris did a study where he supplemented people before they had surgery and he looked at blood loss and it was actually decreased with omega-3s. Um, so I don't think bleeding time is an issue, although people often mention it. Um, but what is... Um, so So I think people don't have to worry about bleeding problems um, with omega-3s. But what has emerged from some large trials of high-dose pharmaceutical preparations of omega-3s in people at risk of cardiovascular disease is um, a small increase in risk of atrial fibrillation, which no one really understands. Um, and <clears throat> But it seems to be real. But what, what is really interesting is one of the trials where this emerged first um, demonstrated, so this is the REDUCE-IT trial. So this was 3.6 grams of EPA as an ethyl ester for five years in people at high risk of cardiovascular disease. So in that trial, they showed um, about a 25% reduction in the primary outcome, which was related to cardiovascular uh, outcomes, including mortality. So overall, the trial showed quite a significant benefit of this high-dose EPA ethyl ester. Despite this benefit, there was an increase in, and I can't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but it was a modest increase in atrial fibrillation. So um, there were some people in the trial where this adverse effect happened, although overall the trial showed a benefit. But that opened the door for people to start looking a little bit more at this question of atrial fibrillation. And there is a meta-analysis 
that's been published showing that high-dose omega-3s increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. Um, but again, these are high doses. That study used 3.6 grams per day, which is a big dose. Um, personally, I don't think at one gram per day there's an issue. Um, but this is something which has emerged relatively recently, Simon. Philip, this has been incredibly interesting. True masterclass, it really, really is. It's like uh, talking to a, the encyclopedia of all things polyunsaturated fats. So, thank you so much for for joining us. I know that this information is going to help uh, many, many people, um, and we we really value your time today and and all of your contribution to science. Well, thanks very much for having me, Simon. Great to talk to you. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.